Hey everybody, welcome to episode 15 of the Global Health Impact Fund podcast. I'm your host, Martin Eels. And today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. Um, so in today's session, I'd like to cover more about AI and tackling emission problems. So for today's episode, I have an amazing speaker with me who is an expert in AI. I would like to introduce you to Dr. Michael Byrne, CEO and founder of Satisfy Health and founder of AI for GI. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Martin. I appreciate the invitation. So before we begin, why don't you just do a quick introduction of yourself and um, Satisfy Health and AI for GI? Sure. So I am still a practicing physician. I'm a gastroenterologist by training uh, here in, in Vancouver. So I work at uh, the university here. Uh, but my main passion these days is in artificial intelligence as applied to healthcare. So I started Satisfy Health, I think, in 2014 or early 2015. Um with the idea to bring uh, AI solutions to the field in which I've been working for the last 25, 30 years, uh, namely uh, gastroenterology, and in particular GI uh, endoscopy. Um, uh, so that was really the genesis, the idea to bring precision endoscopy, personalized endoscopy, uh, predictive endoscopy uh, uh, to the fore, uh, and a joint venture that I formed as well at the beginning, just part of our story, um, is uh, AFGI, as you just mentioned. But um, it's been a very exciting journey in the last six or seven years, and um, uh, I'm excited to continue on it. That's awesome. You're doing some amazing things, so, you know, keep up the good work. So let's talk about, you know, where we are right now. Um, obviously, there's a lot of hype surrounding AI, especially in the medical world for the last few years. Well, in 2021, you know, can we confidently say that these technologies are quickly moving towards the clinic? Yes, we can. I think if we'd done this podcast uh, a couple of years ago, it would be a lot more tentative about what maybe we can hope to get or where it's going to go in the future. Uh, but in that time frame, we've already seen adoption in several fields now of tools that are being employed in the clinic uh, uh, on a daily basis. So radiology, dermatology, um, those spaces with static imaging, they really led the way in AI, particularly radiology, all the, the X-rays, the CT scans, the MRI scans, you know, they, they've been working in the AI space for assisted uh, reads or even automated reads for the last several years. And there are already tools now available in that particular clinical space. In my own field, my own field of gastroenterology, again, a couple of years ago, it was still speculative. Now, there are already tools um, that are being used. So, for example, uh, a tool, uh, a colon cancer screening. The idea in colon cancer screening, is, as I'm sure you know and your listeners will know, is to look for polyps, right? We're trying to prevent cancer or pick things up early. So we're looking for polyps. And the two tools that physicians need, we need something to help us pick them up, in other words, see them, detect them, and then to be able to interrogate them or look and see what is the actual pathology, if we can do a, a virtual pathology evaluation. There are tools called CADI and CADX for that. And uh, in the last uh, couple of years, um, all the major endoscopy vendors have detection solutions uh, in Europe approved. And just a few weeks ago, lots of press on this, I'm sure you read it. Um, there's a, um, a Medtronic came out with, um, or rather got FDA approval for the, the GI Genius 
a call on polyp detection. So this is a tool to help the physician pick up more lesions. So there's the answer already. These tools are now available, and I think we're just opening the floodgates here. Okay. So does AI have the capability of handlers in real time if there's an area of concern that we can target? Absolutely. Um, and that's work that uh, I've been doing uh, with, with my group for several years. We're working in many spaces, but one of them is the ability to do a lifetime pathology evaluation, a lifetime virtual pathology. What kind of tissue are we looking at? Are we looking at cancerous tissue, precancerous tissue, or benign tissue? Um, and there are tools available that can do that in live time, like in a matter of you know, hundreds of milliseconds. Uh, the human eye might take longer and in many cases is less accurate. So it's still uh, a little bit behind the detection work. But again, to, to the point I made a few minutes ago, um, there is already approval for some of this kind of virtual pathology or so-called optical biopsy with AI um, already available now in, in Europe, uh, in the endoscopy world. So it's coming quickly. And yes, we will have the ability very soon to at least help the physician uh, decide if what they're looking at in real time is potentially cancerous or precancerous and allow for what you just said, Martin, which is kind of targeted biopsies. OK, so the AI will point the user and say, I'm a bit suspicious about that bit over there. Maybe you should take your biopsy over there. Um, that's absolutely almost here and now and definitely coming in the next couple of years. It's great to hear. Like, you know, I was doing quite a bit of reading, especially for the papers that you've done, uh, you know, and clinicians across all fields of medicine, uh, especially who read AI articles, you know, they're kind of united by the most fundamental questions, you know, and I'll read these out and then, you know, we can circle back to these, you know, like why should I care about the AI system or how might I potentially um, integrate the system into current clinical setting. Um, how does this ultimately help me to help the patient with the disease under study? And then, you know, lamely many studies do not answer these critical questions or, you know, include understandable explanations of the AI methodology, um, which could significantly help clinicians to put results in proper contexts. So like, what would you suggest for any clinicians who are reading the AI articles who don't fully understand AI? Clearly, uh, this is not a case of when AI, or rather if AI is coming to our medical space in the various fields. It's a case of when and how. So, you know, there's a there's a uh, Anthony Chang, uh, who we, we meant, were talking before the podcast here, uh, uh, who, who's doing some great work with AI Med. You know, one of his quotes that I've seen on his slides is, um, Will AI replace physicians? And he says, no, but physicians who use AI will replace those who do not. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, so I don't know that many or most of us have actually got a choice. It's going to be part of our new lexicon, part of our armamentarium to help our patients. So you should care because it's coming. You should care because even though we've got lots of barriers and lots of questions to answer, um, it is the way forward. It's, a, it's undoubtedly going to be an improvement in our current processes. We miss lesions. We misdiagnose things. We make mistakes. Is, is the machine perfect? Absolutely not. But can it help us already um, improve our performance? I'll go back to the, uh, the, the polyp detection thing I talked about a few minutes ago. Um, there's, a, there's a metric in the colonoscopy world called the ADR or the adenoma detection rate. It's picking up. It's, it's a 
a metric for how many precancerous polyps you're picking up uh, during your screening procedures. There's a there's a clear kind of expected level, let's say 35, 40% ADR. And there are many people globally who are falling underneath that. And in my opinion, they either got to slow down, get more training, encourage better bowel preparation from the patient so they can see things better, or and or use technology to help them, right? And um, I suspect in the next short period, payers, reimbursement bodies, uh, regulators, whatever, are going to mandate that if you don't reach a certain performance threshold, you're not getting reimbursed, you're not getting your privileges renewed, whatever it may be. And I believe that is only fair and appropriate when we live in an era where technology can improve us overnight. Studies already showing that maybe an AI tool in polyps can help you improve your ADR by seven, eight, nine, ten percent. That is not to be sniffed at. I'll, I'll give your listeners one um, a statistic. For every percentage increase in improvement in the ADR, we decrease the mortality from colon cancer by three percent. So any improvement is to be encouraged. So it's coming. We need to be able to adopt it. There's a, a very quickly growing field of uh, explainability in AI, having transparency in AI, and having the user at least understand to some degree how is the machine making that decision. Uh, it, you may not understand the intricacies, and it's really quite intricate to the average listener or, or reader, but you can understand the basics. And there are explainability models that are being built in now, particularly in healthcare to show the user, okay, the AI is making a decision because it sees something in that little bit over there that it thinks is suspicious. And, and there'll be color codes or, or, or a gradation of different bars with different colors to show the reader the areas that the AI is suspicious of. Um, so, uh, and I, I, would, I think I would finish in this uh, question, Martin, by saying in 2021, most of the GI journals are full of AI articles. I review for most of the big GI journals and medical journals. In fact, it could be a full-time job um, in and of itself. And um, uh, there, there is lots of opportunity now. In fact, a lot of papers making strenuous efforts to educate people like me and my colleagues of this new language, this new lexicon of AI. So just read the journals and you'll get the basics of AI pretty quickly. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a tool that's here to say. I completely agree with that. So just to circle back down, the two middle questions like were uh, how might I potentially integrate this system to the current clinical setting? And then the other one, which I think is the more important one, is how does this ultimately help me to help? So one of the key uh, um, things with, with implementing any new technology, tool, medication, whatever it may be, is to not significantly interfere with current workflow. People are resistant to change. Um, uh, maybe correctly so. Something has worked for a long time, so why make a dramatic uh, paradigm shift overnight um, and alter the workflow? So uh, incorporating AI tools into the endoscopy space, which is mainly what we're talking about today from my expertise, um, Many groups, including ours, have made strenuous efforts to make sure that these integrate almost seamlessly into the um, the current workflow. So we don't want doctors to be distracted, having to um, 
press you know five different buttons to get an AI solution, have multiple screens in the room where their attention is distracted, that could actually be counterproductive, right? So there are uh, efforts, lots of studies that have been done to reduce the, let's say, the novelty that might distract users uh, and just give them the answers that they want or the decision-making tools that they need. Um, so I'm not too concerned about how to adopt some of these technologies right now into our current workflow. Lots of groups looking at the ergonomics of how to, to, to do so. Um, uh, what, why should we, what will it mean for your patients and your practice? Well, again, as I mentioned with the, with the call on polyps, anything that will improve your performance is to be uh, encouraged. I think we can no longer hide behind um, you know, the medical wall um, uh, where nobody, a lot of the time, is nobody's really looking at your practice, um, and they should be. And uh, if we want to reach performance be benchmarks, have you know KPIs, key performance indicators, or whatever, um, you, I think technology will help us achieve those. And we need to be transparent in whether or not we are achieving those. Several years ago, there was a scope called the Fuse Scope, and it was a, an endoscope with three lenses, forward viewing lens, and one on either side. And the idea there, the marketing. Uh, a story was that you can increase the visualization compared to a regular scope that we all use. And in the US, I, I, I saw uh, advertisements for Clinic A over Clinic B saying, hey, we use the fuse scope. Our polyp detection is better because we've got this cool scope. Uh, come to us instead of the competitor down the street. You know, that's not what it's all about in healthcare. But there is also going to be a story where people will, patients, consumers, whatever, payers will want to know who's using the best current technology and getting the best performance. So uh, the end game still has to be improving patient care. If that is not the end game here, and if that's not always forefront in our mind in developing these solutions, we're in the wrong business because ultimately it's about improving patient care. And of course, making healthcare, which is so expensive, more cost efficient and cost effective so that we can use our limited dollars other areas of healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I know you're involved in AI as well at the uh, you know academic level. Um, I know you write a lot of articles, especially in the space, and you present around the world. But like, you also do like um, R&D level where you develop AI solutions. Um, you also work at a commercial level um, where you forge the industry agreements. Like I'd love to know a little bit more about the R&D side of how. Um, where you develop the AI solutions. So as you rightly point out there, uh, Martin, there's a big academic uh, representation now for medical AI. Um, um, I'm, I'm in the throes right now of putting together a, a textbook for AI in medicine, not in GI, but in medicine overall, big undertaking, um, for a very larger medical uh, publisher. And the appetite for that is huge. And I've been able to reach out to uh, academic uh, uh, people around the globe who write in, in these various spaces. Some of them have commercial uh, application of their tools and some of them don't. So there are lots of groups out there who are able to achieve academic um, uh, uh, visibility of their work and have tools that look pretty good. The difference between that and executing and having tools that are ready for regulatory clearance uh, uh, having the right funds to develop all the usability features that you need is a, is a, is a big difference. 
Uh, and thankfully, at Satisfy Health, we have been successful in that. Um, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I also founded a, a, a joint venture called AFGI. Uh, and through that joint venture, we uh, forged a deal with Olympus America in the colon polyp space. So that's great to get a very large leading industry uh, scope manufacturer uh, to, to, um, to work with this uh, in a very pivotal space of colon screening. Beyond that, there's so much opportunity. Uh, so we're working really in bringing AI solutions from uh, top to bottom, the entire GI tract and all the, the, the organs in between um, to look at early cancer uh, detection, to uh, democratize uh, endoscopic surgery, lots of novel and cool and fantastic work in, in what we can do endoscopically now with, with surgical techniques, but very hard to get um, wide user uh, um, numbers because it, these techniques are hard, but they're also hard because people don't really understand what it is they're looking at on the screen. So AI can absolutely help to democratize the ability to, to, to know in intimate detail what are you looking at uh, and how can you apply these tools. Uh, the fields of Crohn's and colitis or inflammatory bowel disease, very big need, um, very big um, uh, uh, um, therapy uh, area, of course. The, the, the medications, the biologics used in, in Crohn's and colitis are outrageously expensive drugs. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, as you well know. And the, um, the explosion in new biologics for these various autoimmune diseases, particularly uh, in Crohn's and colitis in my own space, is unbelievable. There are absolutely tools to help in, in recruiting patients better for, for trials, in improving the quality of, of uh, inclusion into trials, in doing uh, much quicker, let's say, central reads. So how clinical trials work right now is uh, Dr. A takes a video of a patient's procedure and it gets sent to a so-called expert central reader somewhere else on the globe to do uh, a critical evaluation of that and to gauge the activity of disease and see if that patient goes into the trial or not. That's a bit subjective, but it's also very expensive and time-consuming. And AI can absolutely help that. And we've been doing a lot of work in that space in particular with um, a lot of interest from uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So it's a really exciting space to be in. Um, and I think we really are just tip of the iceberg right now in terms of what can be done, what will be done, and what needs to be done. Um, yeah. Um, so again, I'll go back to uh, some of the, let's say, optical biopsy work. All of the major uh, endoscopy manufacturers, uh, their scopes have white light, traditional white light that we all are familiar with. And they have some version of filtered light or blue light or blue-green light. So it's a much uh, more narrow spectrum of light within the visible spectrum. But the idea with those various types of light is that they... Uh, enhance the detail of what can be seen on the surface of the lining of the bowel. Um, the difficulty is that most human eyes can't really make sense of the additional detail there. It's a bit like I've got a TV in my house in Vancouver that is uh, 17 years old. I'm totally fine with it. If I go to 
one of my friends' homes, and they've got a you know one of the, a brand new TV, um, 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 uh, uh, high definition, you name it. Right, I, I almost get a headache because there's just too much, um, too many data points on the screen, and it's a little bit like that in in contemporary endoscopy. We have improved lighting. We have um, um, much greater uh, resolution. We have just basically outrageously improved imagery on the screen there. But the human eye just can't uh, take a veil of, of, of all of those data points and extract the relevant information to process or cannot do it in a timely fashion or cannot do it in a consistent uh, and accurate fashion. So um, back to your question, uh, we'll go to the esophagus. So there's a precancerous condition in the esophagus that people will have heard of, I'm sure, called Barrett's esophagus. It's a common condition. It, it's, it's particularly common in people with long-standing heartburn or reflux, this kind of attempt of the esophagus to resist the acid. And unfortunately, that, that attempt um, results in a change in the lining of the cells that can be precancerous and develop into proper esophageal cancer. The ability of the human eye in most positions to interpret that in great detail and spot concerning areas for pre-cancer or actually invasive cancer is quite alarmingly poor. Um, people also don't take, and this is a, a slightly controversial statement, but I'll say it, you know, people are under pressure to, to get through a lot of patients in, in a day. So they won't spend 40 minutes with uh, spraying vital dyes onto the lining of the intestine to pick up details uh, uh, more. They'll, they'll, they'll look for obvious concern and they'll remove the scope. Technology can tell us where to look, um, uh, where to biopsy, uh, highlight to you, actually, you know what, there's an area of suspicion that I think there's invasive cancer there. It might save patients an unnecessary surgery, or it might push them towards an appropriate surgery when actually they've been underdiagnosed. So that ability to do a live decision uh, um, uh, kind of um, investigation algorithm where that patient is going next is alarmingly, uh, well, well, not alarmingly, but it's certainly lacking. And um, there's no doubt that we have much, uh, a lot of room for improvement. We miss things in the stomach, in the esophagus. We don't know where to biopsy. We under or overscore pathology. We send patients for surgery that they don't need or don't send them for surgery that they do need. And on and on and on. You get it, right? So there's lots of pain points there that, um, that most of my colleagues would agree with, even though if you ask them off the record, they may say, oh, no, we're fine as we are. But the statistics and the, the studies and the gaps in our performance don't, don't, don't fit with that answer, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I have one more question to ask you. Like, what's the one piece of advice you would give anybody in the medical space regarding AI? Get ready for the tidal wave. It's it's already started. Um, um, it, if it's not in your clinical already, or you haven't been approached by groups who have solutions that are already um, uh, have regulatory clearance, you will be soon, and it will be part of your um, solutions going forward. Embrace it because it's actually very exciting. It's really cool um, uh, advance that we're making in this space using this and allied technologies. Um, uh, it can absolutely open your own mind. You, you know, lots of groups now, including our own, are giving 
uh, institutions, individual physicians, the ability to do their own research, uh, uh, you know, providing them with models to, 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 to do some of their own uh, investigator, uh, uh, physician-initiated uh, research in AI. We will provide you with the tools uh, to do that. So embrace it because it's coming. Uh, you will be left behind, I think, if you are an naysayer. Uh, and it's good to have, you know, it's good to have um, safety valves in place and make sure that we're not going too quickly. Lots of patients and physicians might be concerned right now to let a machine make the decision. Um, we don't need to, um, we absolutely need to address those fears and concerns. Um, but that doesn't mean that we need to wait another decade. Uh, we've, I think we've seen, Martin, in the last 12 months with this um, awful uh, COVID pandemic that unfortunately is still ongoing, um, the appetite for, for digital health and digital solutions in health has gone through the roof. Um, and it's really pushed forward um, advances in this space, in my opinion. It's also uh, advanced uh, the regulatory bodies in their ease with giving approval to such solutions. I think they recognize that they can't put up too many barriers. They need appropriate safety checks, but you also need to move quickly uh, uh, for adoption. So it's here, embrace it, and uh, you know, get on the gravy train. <laughs> Absolutely. Michael, I think that's it for me for today. Um, you know, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I know the listeners will really appreciate it. Um, so if anyone's interested in knowing more, you can head over to the Global Health Impact Network.net uh, website. You can stand up join the community, you know, and you'll be the first to listen to podcasts and education series. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Appreciate it. All right. Stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye.